Well, good morning. Good morning. As the children are leaving, let's move uh, in our Bibles to John chapter 18. John chapter 18. We'll start in verse 28. Hear the word of the Lord. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. And then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. And together we all say, The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Let's pray again. Father God, help us uh, to hear what you say and to obey what we hear. Your word counsels us, so may we be comforted by it. Your word feeds us. May we receive it with joy. And your word rules over us. May we submit our whole selves to it. Be with us, Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, let's get our bearings, uh, because the trial, and I say that loosely, the trial of Jesus happens very quickly. Uh, For something so monumental in human history, uh, it's actually over pretty abruptly. For reference, uh, the trial of O.J. Simpson took 11 months. The trial of Jesus of Nazareth took between 12 and 20 hours. So, It moves quickly, and let's try to remember what happened. So late the previous night, uh, as George told us last week, Jesus and his disciples had been praying in a public garden together. And then Judas arrives. You'll remember that Judas was a disciple of Jesus, 
who had recently plotted to betray Jesus for money. And so Judas had hired a band of Roman soldiers. And so along with Judas to this garden uh, come Jewish officers from the Sanhedrin, uh, which are a group of scribes and judges within the Jewish court system, and also some high-ranking Pharisees and several of the chief priests. All these people arrive to come arrest Jesus in the middle of the night. And for the rest of these chapters, John is just going to call these people the Jewish leaders. So Jesus went to the garden to be with his disciples to pray, but he ends up leaving with a whole group of influential people who all want the same thing. They are united in their purpose. They want Jesus executed for his crimes of blasphemy and for leading the people astray. And so at the end of, uh, at earlier in this chapter, they take Jesus to Annas, who, was the, uh, who had been the high priest for many, many years, uh, so that Annas could examine Jesus. And then they moved him to Caiaphas, which was the current high priest. There was lots of questioning, uh, and there would be no sleep or rest coming for Jesus. So that's where we pick up the story in verse 28. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's house so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. And so by leaving the house of Caiaphas, this, this has signaled to us, the reader, that the Jewish part of the trial is now over. And now we can begin the Roman part of the trial. And now you have to play by the Roman rules. So they have to go to the governor's headquarters, which is a combination of a fortress and a palace. Uh, It's near the temple, and it's the place that King Herod would come and stay whenever he had to visit Jerusalem. Uh, And so now Pilate has taken over as the governor of all of Judea, and so he stays here when he's in Jerusalem. Pilate is the Roman prefect, which is translated governor uh, in our Bibles. He oversees all of Judea, and Jerusalem is the largest city in Judea. What this means for the Jewish leaders that are carrying Jesus uh, is that this is not only a Gentile house, but it is a house that represents the Roman military occupation in the land. It is Uh, doubly impure. Entering this house would mean that you are ritually impure and must go through a cleansing process for up to seven days. And this poses a little ethical problem for the Jewish leaders because it's Passover weekend and they want to eat the feast of the Passover. But if they go inside the governor's house, they won't be able to do this. Now, fortunately for them, uh, the Roman officials usually accommodate some of these local customs uh, rather than to risk uprising and conflict. So Pilate does not force them inside his house. And in this way, they get to advocate for Jesus' death without being defiled. This is just the first of many of John's ironies uh, in this passage. Uh, They don't enter so that they won't be defiled. They're very concerned with ritual purity, but are also trying quickly and quietly to put the Messiah to death. And these two impulses should not go together. Uh, They want to be eligible for the Passover feast, so they must hurry to kill Jesus, 
who will in a few days become the Passover lamb. And this is because, as we'll arrive at in verse 37, only those people who are of the truth will listen to Jesus. So verse 29, Pilate went outside to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? So now we've started the the judicial dance between Pilate, who represents the Roman rule, and the Jewish leaders, uh, and then Jesus Christ. And Pilate cannot deny them a hearing. After all, they are first in line. They came in at early morning. And this is a blasphemy trial. And so it's something that riles up the people. uh, And there's simply too many high-ranking Jews outside to dismiss this case. He he has to hear it. And so he asks for the accusation against Jesus. Uh, And this is correct because they are seeking a penalty, death, that they are forbidden to carry out. So he asks, what's the charge? They must convince him that it's more prudent to kill Jesus than to imprison him or exile him. Verse 30, they answered him, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. This is a terrible start. Uh, Their official charge against Jesus is laughable, and should have been thrown out. Uh, it is the ancient equivalent of, uh, bro, just trust us. Now, maybe, since they had hired Roman soldiers to carry out the arrest, maybe they thought Pilate would have heard about the case by now, and that this would just be a formality. But that's not what happened. Either way, Pilate says, I'm not doing this. Verse 31, Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. So Pilate, representing Rome in this province, holds almost limitless power over non-citizens. He only answered to Rome and to the Roman Senate. And so as much as possible, the governors would let their local customs run their course because it was less work for them and it risked fewer uprising. It's far easier just to let them handle their own punishments, but this isn't going to work uh, for the Jewish leaders outside. And why? Well, it's not lawful for them to put anyone to death. Although it sometimes happened, as you can read about in Acts 7, with the murder of Stephen. And this is another one of John's little ironies. Uh, The Jews who despise their Roman occupiers must now depend on Roman power to carry out their execution. They cannot reach their goal of killing through their own laws. And verse 32 adds, this was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. We are mere hours away from Jesus' death. This whole trial has been quick and quiet and full of procedural errors, and yet this is how the Son of Man will be put to death. Verse 33. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? So here is the new tactic, probably gained from a longer conversation outside. It is most likely that the Jewish leaders outside 
decided to fill Pilate in on a few theological connections. That Jesus has called himself the Son of God and the Son of Man. And these are titles given to the Messiah. And it necessarily follows then, uh, since the Messiah will come from a royal line of David, that Jesus' claims of divinity also implies that he is the king of the Jews. Now, Rome doesn't care about blasphemy laws in Jerusalem, but they care deeply about political and military threats within their empire. See, if Jesus declares himself to be a king, then that would mean he's assuming a title that wasn't given to him by Rome. He could be actually leading a revolt. And this happened frequently in these days. Just in Jesus' lifetime, we read about four would-be messiahs who led armed revolutions against Rome in their occupied territories. Now, they were all quickly crushed, and we don't talk about them very often for one, one main reason, and that is that they stayed dead when they were killed. And so Pilate is caught, and he's going to do whatever causes the least amount of political ripples. If he dismisses their case... He, ripped, he risks upsetting this powerful group of Jewish leaders. And they can absolutely cause trouble for him. Uh, and Pilate has already made some questionable choices in the last couple years. Uh, we learn this by reading the histories of Josephus and Philo. Uh, a few years ago, he raided the temple treasury to pay for an aqueduct. And that upset some people. Uh, and about 18 months before the trial of Jesus, uh, his, his patron... Uh, back in the Senate, basically his lobbyist who spoke for him in front of the Senate, uh, was accused and executed for trying to lead a mutiny against the emperor. Uh, so he's closely associated with that. So he has not won any friends uh, either in Rome uh, or with the Jewish leaders that he is now talking to. So he's going to take the path of least personal exposure. And then we have Jesus, the condemned one, who is actually in complete control of this whole battle for jurisdiction. Remember, Jesus has already said that the Son of Man will be lifted up in his death. This is from chapter 12. And the only way to secure that kind of death was by crucifixion. And what charge always demands a crucifixion? It's treason, not blasphemy. And so Jesus, the powerless one inside the headquarters, has orchestrated, of course, every decision so far and knows what's coming. But to salvage some appearance of a fair trial, Pilate pushes Jesus farther to admit that he's a king. Verses 34 and 35, Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? You can almost see Jesus smirk while he questions the questioner. It's, I'm sure it's a holy smirk, but it might still be a smirk. And he says, you got this king language from them, didn't you? You didn't come up with this on your own. And Pilate evades the question. He says, this isn't about me. I'm not the one in trouble. I'm not Jewish, so you'd never be my king anyway. 
You're the one in trouble. It was your people that handed you over to me, your own nation. And this comes as no surprise to readers of John's gospel. All the way back in chapter 1, we, said, we read that when the light of the world came into the world, that his own people did not receive him. And now Pilate is getting impatient, and it's showing. So he says, what have you done? Verse 36. Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not of this world. This is all that Pilate needed and the Jewish leaders needed because now Jesus has technically admitted to possessing a kingdom. And Jesus can redefine kingdom all he wants, but for the purposes of this uh, trial, Pilate has heard all he needs. Kings have kingdoms. And Roman governors won't wait to hear the nuances of a spiritual kingdom. But this is also the crucial statement in this section from John. This whole morning uh, is a squabble over jurisdiction. Who can exercise power over Jesus Christ? The Jews want to exercise their power over a blasphemer. So they think they hold power over Jesus. And remember what the Jewish leaders are afraid of. Go back seven chapters uh, to John 11. Actually, go back seven chapters to John 11. I can hear the pages now. It's great. Uh, John 11 in verse 47. This is just after Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead. And everyone should have been happy, but this is what we read in verse 47. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. See, as much as they hate Rome, they have a little bit of autonomy, and they have a little bit of safety under Roman rule with the arrangement that they have. So from their perspective, belief in Jesus actually threatens the deal that they have uh, the deal they have brokered with the Roman government. So they don't have real power over Jesus. They're acting in fear. And, and neither do the Romans, really. In the very next chapter, in chapter 19, in verse 11, uh, 10 and 11, Pilate's going to ask Jesus, do you not know that I have authority over you to release you or authority to crucify you? And Jesus answers, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. And so Jesus knows what they don't know. That everyone who delivered Jesus over believed that they held power over him. We see this phrase over and over again in these chapters. Twice it says that Judas delivered Jesus over. Twice the Jewish leaders deliver him over. And once Pilate delivers him over to be crucified in 19, and yet it's Jesus who lays down his life. No one can take it from him. See, Jesus presides over a kingdom, 
that is neither of or from this world, and neither the Jews nor the Romans can understand how this power actually works. His authority predates the world, and it will outlast the world. And though the world is decidedly set against him, Jesus has overcome the world. And he gives a little bit of an argument in verse 36 about how power works in this kingdom. Because he says, my servants don't have to fight to protect their king. Remember the previous night, Jesus' disciples were instructed to pray. Pray for Jesus, not to fight. And even when Peter breaks rank and draws his sword, he's rebuked for doing it. Loyalty to this king does not mean that his servants will wield the sword to retain power. Because the shape of Jesus' kingdom is radically different. Now, of course, Pilate will miss this point entirely uh, and try to say, gotcha, in verse 37. And Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. So Pilate goes for the accusation, aha, you are a king. But Jesus does not hand him the easy conviction that he wants. This king has a loyalty to the truth. And he says the whole reason he came is to bear witness to a higher truth. Inevitably, the kingdoms of this world will come into conflict with Christ's kingdom of truth. It's not just what happened once here, it's what always happens. And some of these kingdoms may last a long time, centuries even, either in harmony with these truth claims or by marginalizing them down to private preferences. But eventually, like Rome, the truth claims of Jesus and their ethical implications on our lives will force every kingdom into the same decision, either yield to this truth or martyr all those who do. And yet Jesus is not worried because he knows what comes next. Glory. Notice his movement in the Gospel of John. He has shared glory with the Father. He's been born into a particular earthly kingdom to manifest this glory. And now this particular kingdom will attempt to snuff out this glory, thinking that they've won. And instead, we will see Christ resurrect in glory and return again in glory. The kingdoms of this earth are no match for the glory of our Lord. Verse 38, Pilate said to him, what is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Pilate here unwittingly proves Jesus' point. That those who know the truth will listen to Jesus. Pilate does not believe and does not know the truth. And so he discards both Jesus and the truth. See, he's used to his revolutionaries being a bit more blunt and violent and less mysterious. 
And so you can feel his mixture of perplexity and irritation with Jesus. And so he gives this throwaway question, what is truth? Jesus, for him, is a nuisance that's taking up his mourning, but probably a harmless nuisance. And so Pilate finds Jesus not guilty in verse 38. And here we reach another one of John's ironies. Pilate has functioned as a good temple priest, inspecting the soon-to-be-sacrifice for blemishes and declaring him spotless. So he tries one more tactic to settle the case without an execution. He is, of course, aware of the local customs in the region that he oversees, and he knows that at Passover, they release one prisoner to symbolize the forgiveness of sins. And so he asks the Jewish leaders uh, if Jesus, the not guilty one, is probably the best candidate for this program. And the leaders speak on behalf of all the Jews in Jerusalem that they prefer Barabbas. One more irony. Uh, Mark, in chapter 15, tells us a little bit more about Barabbas. Not only was he a thief, uh, but he had committed murder in a failed insurrection. So rather than release Jesus, who poses no threat of violence toward Rome, Pilate is manipulated into releasing a zealot who has actually spilled blood against Rome. And with this, the trial of Jesus of Nazareth is finished. Mere hours after his nighttime arrest, before the day is done, he will be sentenced to execution and then crucified. There's nothing left to do with the Passover lamb except to sacrifice. John's story is reaching its conclusion. Remember back in chapter 1, John the Baptist comes on the scene, sees Jesus and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus himself in chapter 12 says, When I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. And now Jesus has been delivered over to the temple, inspected, declared innocent, and soon will bear the sins of the people. He will, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, become the new Passover lamb. And by doing this, he bears witness to this truth, both in his life and because of his death, that his kingdom is the true kingdom. And so the question for us this morning, maybe the only question from this text, is what do we do with this kingdom? What do we know about this kingdom? The kingdom that his ministry began and the kingdom for which he offered up his life so that we could enter. What's it like? Well, we know a few things. It's not of this world or from this world. It doesn't draw its authority from anything in the world And it's not patterned after anything in the world. We know its weapons are spiritual weapons because the church does not wield the sword to get her way. Even at the end, when Jesus returns in glory to bring justice to the kingdoms of the world, uh, we don't actually engage in the combat. Do you remember back in Exodus 15 uh, when Israel is fleeing from Pharaoh? Remember what God does to Pharaoh's army? 
we will once again stand on the shore singing while Jesus removes our enemies. After all, our sword is the spirit, our helmet is salvation, and our shield is faith. And so the battles in this kingdom are not like the wars of earthly kingdoms. And this is because this kingdom conquers through a particular sort of love. Not a syrupy sweet affection or an approval of all things, but a unique, sacrificial, dying-to-self kind of love. And this kingdom asks everything of us. Our lives, our loyalties, our identity, our favorite sins, and even our control. And we're okay with this because we know the character of the king. And the character of the king is such that he lays down his life so that we can be adopted into his kingdom. We also know the future of this kingdom. That the king will return to bring justice, to bring wickedness to an end, and to restore righteousness. This king's power cannot be manipulated or controlled, only received in gratefulness. And for all who continue to rebel against this king, there is separation. But for all who receive his righteousness as a gift, there will be adoption of sons and daughters into this kingdom. We know all that, and we know that this kingdom has a table. The table in front of us this morning is the table of this eternal kingdom. It is not the table of any specific earthly kingdom or a specific nation or a specific ethnicity. It transcends all earthly kingdoms and demands that our loyalty be given first to this kingdom before all things. And while it does not belong to any earthly kingdom, this table is freely given to his people in any of them. A gracious overlay from the heavenly kingdom onto the kingdoms of this world. And so Christians in Australia and Japan and Syria come to the same table brought forward in time to receive what we also receive here. What we eat here is a gift from the true king of all kingdoms as a foretaste, a preview of all the feasts to be held in his true kingdom. What we receive at this table is a promise that his kingdom is coming and that we can see it unfold in real space and real time, not through violent conquest or weightless philosophy, but through the spirit doing his work the renewing of all things and the reclaiming of those who once followed Satan the liar but now repent and believe in Jesus. This table bears witness to the truth, to the most fundamentally real thing about our world, that Jesus came once, offered himself for us, and is coming again. And so we come as those who are of the truth and as those who listen to his voice to claim what he has promised to give at his table. Grace upon grace upon grace. We read in 1 Corinthians 11, 
On the night when he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This is not the table even of our particular church or our city or any particular kingdom of the world. It is the table of our Lord, and he invites to it any who profess faith in Jesus as the Savior who forgives sins and has overcome the world. If that isn't true for you, and you have not taken the name of our King, then please don't come to his table, because you risk eating and drinking judgment on yourself. If you don't believe, we're so glad you're here. Please sit Contemplate these things. Think about what is on offer from Jesus Christ. There'll be elders up here after the service. Come talk to them. Have them pray for you. Ask your questions. But please don't come forward. If you do believe, then please receive what only King Jesus can offer you. The old Christmas hymn puts it, he offers his own self for heavenly food. Let's pray. Father, help us to receive in faith and to hold fast what we have received. The forgiveness of our sins and the promise of eternal communion with God our Father. Lord, we know that bread is bread and this juice is juice, but that you are here feeding us. And so as we eat at your table, help us also to bear your name in the world, that your light will shine through us, and that others will see your good works and glorify you in heaven. Amen.